Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Introducing Josh Clausen. He says he's a softie, but he went to jail for 15 years over a dollar bill. And now he's married to my friend Megan from Dating Disasters. Previous episode, I will be dropping that in the comments. Josh, welcome. So we're going to do a quick get to know you right now, okay. huh? All right. Yeah, I guess so, right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like I got your life story in a DM, so... There's so many layers to it, but you're right. It may be a tragic case, but at the same time, I guess it's a journey we're all on. I figured it out, I think, maybe not necessarily quicker than most, but I took a big hammer anyway. Oh, my God. Tell me about the hammer. So growing up, you know, I was raised by a single mom. She did the best she could, but, you know... As kids, you know, you, you know what you can get away with and what you can't. And so I kind of ran over my mom. I didn't get the attention that I was looking for or thought that I deserved. That kind of set a course for bumping heads. She didn't know love herself, so she had a lot of single men, you know, a lot of relationships. And, you know, kids rebel against that, too. I'm kind of jumping ahead in the story, but the big hammer was me getting sentenced to 45 years in prison. That, 45 uh, years did you kill someone yeah no i robbed a house i was with uh, an acquaintance and nobody was supposed to be there we go in and i go downstairs he goes upstairs i kind of heard something i don't know kind of sound like he was trash in the place a bit you know like a dress or something falling and he's like come on we gotta go and so we left and i was like what's going on you know what was what was that and he was like man somebody was home and he was like the guy was reaching for a gun so i punched him in the face and we left mm -hmm. even though i didn't assault the guy there is a thing called accomplice liability. So anything that would happen in the commission of that crime, I, even though I didn't do it or not, I would be found guilty of it. Since the assault occurred in the commission of a crime, a felony crime, they tried to kind of label it as a home invasion, but we didn't know anybody was there. So it ended up, I pleaded out to a robbery result in serious bodily injury. I mean, all my previous arrests, you know, was just drug abuse, you know, DUIs. I did a stint in the Marine Corps. They teach you how to drink. They don't teach you how to drink and drive. Came back here, went into the union, had a good job, drank, obviously. I think that's, you know, there's an underlying issue there. My mom's boyfriend got to talking crazy, and he was also my boss at the time. I rode to work with him every morning. I beat him up. Just, man, I've had so many ups and downs in my life. It's crazy I'm still here, to be honest with you. Well, I'm glad you're still here and on the Battle Better Call Daddy show now. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. When did the drinking start? I think the drinking, that was my first taste of what I thought was adulthood. You know, you see all your parents and aunts and uncles. And that's back when, you know, people give you a sip of a beer. My sister had an older boyfriend and he used to come over a lot. And that was the first time I think I tried alcohol. It was Southern Comfort Whiskey. Ah, oh, man, I can still taste it to this day. And I've never been one to like the taste of anything. So I always wanted the effect of it. And so I remember, why would I just want to take a bunch of nasty sips off of this when I can just take a great big mouthful, three or four swallows? That's kind of a metaphor for my life as well. Always wanted to take the shortcut. And so I would just up in that bottle, three or four big mouthfuls, and then I can get that taste out of my mouth and then I'm all right. 
I think I was probably 12 years old when I first started drinking. When I did it, I hit it hard, to say the least. Blackout drunk. That's pretty young, too, to be blacking out. Oh, yeah. There was many nights. I didn't even know where I was at. I remember smoking my first cigarette when I was five years old. I stole it from the babysitter. Those are just moments that I can pick out that I knew that I was being a little heathen. I can't believe I remember, you can remember that far back. And there's just certain things that stick with you. I remember maybe second grade, six, seven years old, and they all had us all in the cafeteria and they proceeded to lecture us all on drugs and the effects and whatnot. And they held up a cigarette and they're like, all right, well, how many of your parents smoke these kind of cigarettes? And so, you know, oh, yeah, 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 my, my, my. And then they held up a joint and, and then they were like, well, how many of your parents smoke these kind of cigarettes? And so everybody's like, well, yeah, mine does too. And so I remember they took the names of all those kids and had conversations with all of our parents. And I proceeded to get my ass chewed on the way home by my mom and said that you do not ever speak of anything that goes on in our house. Yeah, that was an early on age that I knew something else was up in the house. So. And now you're a parent. So how do you feel about that? In my situation, it's different because I have grandiose ideas of what I want my relationship to be like with my daughter now but there's a lot of time that's gone missing. And so I know that's not really realistic. And so I've kind of had to let her come to me in that regards, because I want to be the nice guy that I am. Like I want to be her friend too, but that's not realistic. That's where my mom failed me. I got to be a father first. And we don't see eye to eye on everything, but I've kind of let her see that I'm here, that I am real and that she's never had anybody that's had her back like I do. When did your daughter come along? So she was born February 11th, 2001. I missed her being born because I got picked up on a warrant. And so that devastated me. My mom was briefly alive then. She got to see her when she was, you know, their first couple of years. My sister's been very involved with my daughter, my aunt. And so my aunt was kind of that other motherly figure that kind of, you know, made sure that we had things, would go the extra mile, you know, with school clothes or something like that. Fast forward when my daughter was born, my sister had taken on that role as well as my aunt. And so that was kind of neat. And so she hasn't wanted for anything. And she's, she's a good girl, you know. She just had a son. I got a grandson. He was born on August 7th, and he is just an adorable, good baby. I know everybody says that, but he's, he's a really good kid. And you got to be there for that. I did, yes. Man, I just, I've been through so many dark places, you know what I mean? And I feel like everything has ever happened to me, every conversation, every interaction, every thought, every idea, everything has led up to, you know, these moments and these blessings that I'm supposed to receive. And man, I was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, but I came out all right. And, you know, a lot of other people don't come out like that. I think that there was some traumatic things that I had to assess about myself in my past. And, and once I started identifying those things, you know, it was kind of like unraveling a ball of yarn, you know, you can see things from a different perspective and maneuver around things and things doesn't bother you. You kind of take control of those things back. I wanted to know why I was the way I was, and what made me, you know, lash out or do certain things that I knew were wrong. You know, honestly, like, I took it back to a moment, and I'm a believer in God. The clarity that I've got was a gift from him, but I take it back to a moment, and I remember I was probably seven years old. My mom and half-sister, in this particular instance, she was with her dad. My mom took us to this one of her friend's house, and they had a couple of kids, and they just left. 
we ran the woods like some Lord of the Flies stuff, you know, just ran amok. And then, you know, we were done exploring and investigating or whatever. And, and so I remember we were been there for like two days. There was no food in the house. Like I remember eating buttered crackers. And I had this toothache and I, I, I mean, I can remember it to this day, like, like what I found out, like in that moment is like, wow, like I am not a priority in my mom's life. And that's tough at seven. And I feel like that really kind of changed the identity of who I was or who I was supposed to become. Because now like I had to fend for myself. How are you going to eat? How are you going to take care of yourself? And so I was different after that. You know, I was searching for little pieces of things that I thought that other people had that I wanted. And so I could never really find myself. You know, that affected me growing up. And I felt like I felt like that I wasn't loved and I wasn't good enough. And so I'm always trying I was trying to change who I was. Growing up, I hung out with the wrong kids and because they showed me a little bit of attention and just it was a hard search, you know, and, and that's the reason I turned to drugs is because I didn't like who I was. And how can a kid that young, how do you process that? I had to kind of learn all these things on how I wanted to be loved and how I want to be treated on my own. And so and that's through a lot of heartache and, and pain and, you know, through drug use. And, and like I said, I didn't even find this out because once I did that, like once I understood that, I, it took all the power away from that. Like I don't have any desire to relive that pain, but also like I understood it. Now that I understood, I'm like, okay, and I can move on. Did you ever get to talk to your mom about how you felt? No, I didn't. She passed away 2002. My mother, she was just, I just think that she didn't really know how to live. She didn't know how to appreciate life. And she was married five times. I, I was trying to think this up. I, it was either five or six. I can remember five for sure. Just looking for love in all the wrong places. You know what I mean? It broke my heart because then you just, you know, you see it and you're just like, okay, she was my battle buddy for sure. And everything as toxic a relationship it was, I mean, I knew somebody had my back. The day she passed, it's so weird. I was in work release for a DUI and her actual, her husband had gotten a DUI too at a company truck. So we were both at work release. My mother went to take care of her husband's mom who was at home with hospice. And so my mom, she... There were so many things that she said she was diagnosed with. I don't know. You, you never know which one's true, but she was, you know, at home taking care of this woman. I split from work release. I ran. He was still there. So I'm on the run and I'm still checking in with my mom. You know, she loaned me a few bucks. I go work somewhere. I felt like, yeah, you know, when I go and visit her, like a part of her was dying with this woman. You know what I mean? Like she's not in the right middle state to be taking care of a woman that's of the last legs of her life. She's not really strong enough to do that. Long story short, her insurance changed. And so she had to get like a three month supply of antidepressants instead of a one month supply. She ended up ODing on a Fexer. I found her on the floor. So now here I am on the run. You know, my mom's going in shock in front of me. I've called the ambulance. They're sending an officer because it's a possible suicide attempt. This lady's neighbor came over. Obviously, I can't be there because they're going to run my name, find out I got a warrant. And so I got in my car before I left to tell my mom, don't. For some reason, this felt different. And so I just told her, I said, don't. You know what I mean? And I was like, I love you. I got in my car and parked across the street. What I didn't know is uh, about midnight that night that she went into some type of arrest. And I mean, I guess legally she was brain dead. And so my sister had to make the decision to take her off live support. I was devastated. There was probably 30 police that arrested me right outside her showing. I didn't mourn that properly. You know, when you go to jail or something like that, like you have to shut down. Like 
you can't live in there in jail and out there in the real world. It's just, you can't do it. You can't survive like that mentally. That must have been a really bad day. Oh, it was, I couldn't even talk. Like uh, there's not, you know, I was just mentally, emotionally exhausted. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. That is, Uh, that's crazy. That's horrible. It is. You know, and like I've looked for reasons over the years. Like I think the only thing that I can think of that I can come up with is my mom. She wanted the best for me regardless, and I and I get that. You know, she just didn't know how to do that, and she didn't know how to be a parent. And but she always wanted to see me stand on my own. And I think maybe maybe I had to lose that crutch. You know, maybe she had to go for me to learn how to be a man. I don't know. Wow, that's actually a really beautiful thing to say. I'm a softie, Rena. I'm telling you, I'm a big softie. I cried everything now. All right. Well, I want to know about the prison chapters. Fifteen years. Shall I begin? Fifteen years. So, was it from that day? Fifteen years. I was locked up in the county jail. So this was probably early '04. I was so like caught up in, in drugs and intoxicated. Like I can't even tell you the exact day. I do remember I was out for like three or four months after the the robbery. Okay, so when they got me outside my mom's funeral, I went and did two years, got out. And so this is the transition period where I was supposed to be on house arrest and and all these things, right? So I got about 10 months of freedom in between getting out of prison and catching this next case. When I was out, I was moving some boxes and I fractured my spine. I don't know how, whatever, but it got an infection in it. And so I was laid up for a long time. So back pain and all, just, you know, trying to go through it. So I used to buy pills from this girl. She proceeded to tell me, I don't know, her old man was putting his hands on her. And I don't go for that. You know, I, I grew up seeing my mom get beat on. And that's something I can honestly say as a man right now. I've never put my hands on a woman. I never will. I was trying to be nice. I was like, well, hey, you know, if you need a place to crash, you can crash in my apartment. And so, you know, this went on for a couple of weeks or whatever. And ended up going from pills to cocaine and she's plotting on her husband's in-laws this is who we were supposed to rob and they were supposed to have these gold coins and gun, you know whatever i would drive by the place and like just try to look at it because i'm not a robber i've never robbed anything before so i'm trying to do it like they do it in the movies you know i'm trying to gain the location and every time i just got a weird feeling weird feeling and anyway she sets up this map of this robbery or whatever right and buys clothes and, and whatnot and we go to do the robbery and the, like I said, we, he said we had to go. We left. I grabbed these bags where this trunk where it was supposed to be. And we get out to the car. And he was like, all right, did you get it? And I was like, well, I just grabbed these bags. And so we go back to his place. And there's nothing in these pictures, Rena. Nothing but just pictures, family photos, Rena. There was $1, I think, in a card. I committed a robbery for $1 bill in about 45 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah, how ironic is that? You know, I wrote him a letter, you know, and I apologize because I took something that I, you can never give somebody back to security. And so they accepted my apology. And so the judge goes to sentence me and I pled to an open plea, which means that I, it's just up to the judge. I was going in there thinking 20 years, you know what I mean? Like 20 do 10, like I deserve that, you know? So I go in there and this judge says, well, I would give you 50 years, the max. He said, but I'm only going to give you 45 suspend 10 of it that's going on probation and so the people i robbed stood up and said he don't deserve that much time yeah from that day forward i was in prison that was really nice of them to say you didn't deserve that well they used some other colorful language too they were like well you, he wouldn't even know where we lived if it wasn't for that bitch and, and so first three years i was just kind of really angry you know it's weird because your relief too like once you the anticipation of not knowing how much time you're getting to when you just finally know you could deal with it then, you know what I mean? The not knowing is what kills you. 
I tried heroin for the first time in prison. I mean, why not, right? How do you get Uh, it in prison? Oh, guards bring it in. You have routes in the mail. I'd be tooting my own horn if I told you all the ways that you can get it in. But that's how I survived for 15 years is to find little hustles and to sell things and, and provide a market. And I mean, you do what you got to do, you know. I ended up leaving that prison and going to Michigan City prison. Oh, where I was at before was the Indiana State Reformatory. I was there for about three years where I did enroll in school and ended up, I got transferred to Miami County Correctional Facility. And I was there for about six years and I graduated there. They have these things called Department of Labor apprenticeship programs that were sponsored by the Department of Labor. They have certain criteria of like uh, RTI hours that you have to do and actual hands-on. I did one. There was one for 4,000 hours. It was like a computer operator. So we went to an interview and, you know, I thought that I was actually pretty smart until you really run into an intellectual person. I'm smart in all the wrong things. And so it was whatever I said must have worked. And so I got selected. There was only probably seven of us that got selected to go from there to go transfer up. And so went to Westville Prison. That's where that was at. It was a great experience. I graduated. I got an associate degree from there. Yeah, I made the best of my time for sure. Oh, my God. You got to tell me, like, what are the differences in all of your prison stops? Oh, my God. So the reformatory, it was about making money. And all the inmates were together against the guards making money. Then when you got transferred to Michigan State Prison, it was weird because the guards were pretty cool. They didn't want no smoke, you know what I mean? But all the inmates made it petty. And so at Miami, Miami was different because you have a two-man cell. Miami allows you to have a TV. And there towards the end, I was just trying to focus on school. And so to go from there to Westville, which is the most deplorable place I'm talking about, just rust everywhere. If you didn't have a tetanus shot, you were hit. And there's certain auras about each of them, too. And, and I think Westville, that was probably the worst school for sure. Have you heard anything about COVID in the prisons? Oh, yeah. I still, I mean, I'm very selective on who I talk to still. But there's a couple people that, you know, we've had some quality conversations with. And if you have any symptoms or anything like that, they're just going to isolate you and put you in segregation by yourself. So it has hit the prisons. Absolutely. But they try to isolate you quick. So Was it hard it has- friend-wise to switch prisons? There's pluses and minuses. So the plus side is you get a different scenery, you kind of change it up. It's not as mundane. But yeah, the minus side is you you have to find people that you can. And it's never necessarily a sense of, you use the word trust, but it's never a trust. It's just, I'll allow you to get this close to me for a little while. You know what I mean? But that's how you do it. You got to feel each other out. The best advice I could give to anybody that's ever going to prison is sit back and watch who associates with who, who's a troublemaker, who's on some bullshit watch people's eyes, watch people's hands. But you can sit back and see who rotates with who and who's not on any BS or you cannot live in prison and try to control things on the streets. You know what I mean? Like you can't do that. People in prison are in a very tightly wound middle state. And don't get me wrong, you know, there's there was nights that I prayed that I didn't wake up. That's how horrible it is. And that's why a lot of them turn to drugs or just anything to get out of that place, that mindset, because that's your worst prison is your mind. You know, they can have your body, but if they get your mind, that's when they win. Tell me about those rough times. I used to be a member of a prison gang when I first got to prison. You know, I was angry and and, uh, lost when I lost my mother and wasted a few years of my life with an organization that saw a lot as a propaganda. I was the Aryan Brotherhood, and that was young. I was probably 23, 24 then. Did you get any tattoos that need covering up? 
I did a local guy. This guy had also had a segment on TV talking about how he does cover up work. He said that, yeah, you know, he would take care of it. And I was like, what do you mean take care of it? I said, well, I just want to know how many sessions it's going to take, how much. He's like, no, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take care of it, man. It's taken a few months, but it's, yeah, it's extensive. But yeah, and so, you know, and that's what I'm saying is like all these interactions, you know, like that's just, it's a blessing. Everything is a blessing. That's a big, it's a big change. Yeah. I have a beautiful family. I love it. You know, I have biracial children that I love like they're my own. I just want to know like why that group you gravitated towards. I think they were the most violent. I think that's what I wanted then in my life was. Did they have you like studying any verses or? Oh yeah, there's definitely creeds, mottos. There's knowledge that you're supposed to learn. It's all one-sided. You know, all it is, is a lot of people that they join it now and they're just scared. They want protection or they have something to offer that somebody else wants. So it's political. And... Did you ever get in any fights in prison? Several fights. <laughs> yes, several fights. I've seen a lot of violence in prison. I've seen people get hit in the head with padlocks for no reason. People stabbed for cutting in line in the chow hall. People getting stomped out for nothing. You just keep it moving. Did you stay in that gang the entire time? No, I got out in 2010. I I went back to prison for the long bit in 2006. I got out in 2010. There's no retiring. So, you know, you took your outs. Um, Yeah, how does that work? So that means uh, you get beat. You get beat the shit out of by two, three guys. Yeah. For, you know, three minutes, whatever, until they get tired. And then you cover it up, cover up your path. No. Yeah. Were you ever part of a three-on-one? Oh, yes. Yes. There's no, yeah, there's no rules to it. Absolutely. So now that you're out, do you plan on staying away from alcohol? Oh, yeah. I don't really, yeah. I don't have any desire what else sticks out about not being in prison? Like, what do you appreciate so much more now? Man, there's so many things. Trees. I love trees. There's no trees inside prison. Waking up next to my wife, going to sleep next to my wife. Just simple things. I, I just, the sunrise. I like listening to birds, the kids, grandkids. I'm grateful for it all. And I think maybe that's why I've succeeded is that I'm humbled and I'm grateful for everything, every moment, every item, every every argument, every snide look, every laugh. Do you feel like you kind of missed out on learning Facebook and the online space and the time that you were gone? Uh, yes, very much so. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I caught up pretty quick on the learning curve with the COVID. It took me two months just to figure out not to how to hang up on somebody by, you know, accepting a call when you're on a call. So and now you might still get hung up on, so I don't know. <laughs> Better call daddy. That's what's up. You already know. That's who I'm calling. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. I hope we can do it again sometime. So, Daddy, what did you think? This is, again, a nice interview that you have with Josh Clawson. That is right. And we should mention that Josh is the now husband of a former guest of ours, Megan. Very interesting. The fact is is that this man has gone full circle where he has even, in some people's opinion would be, and maybe even mine included, where it's almost like going down a black hole (laughs) until you reach a very dubious bottom and then finding a way to climb out of that black hole where you maybe even need a spaceship to get out and has now found the love and the appreciation 
or all the miracles of life and having a family and being able to participate with children and grandchildren and where he's loving nature and being able to see a tree and the sunrise, the sunset, to appreciate all the beautiful things that this earth and world can offer. Hopefully it doesn't take prison to do that, right? Right. Well, this is the thing. The idea is that a lot of times, if you're a single parent, uh, his mom searching for love herself, been married five, six or seven times. I couldn't even get what the right amount was. Constantly looking for attention and love. And he's trying to do the same thing and always thinking that he's playing second fiddle to the next boyfriend along the line. And when you don't get enough attention, what a child sometimes does, Lena, is rebel because if they can't get it in a loving manner and in a constructive manner, they figure that there's got to be some way that I'm going to get it. And sometimes rebelling and being bad or doing misdeeds or getting into trouble will get them more attention that they're getting by not doing that. It's scary as a mother. Right. So the point is, is that she's trying to find her way. And the little boy says, I'm right here. I'm right here. And she doesn't really get the message because she's still trying to find herself. Then he feels deprived or he doesn't get enough attention. As a matter of fact, you have a couple of boys that are crazy about you. And sometimes when they hold on or want extra attention from you, you don't necessarily spend what, in their opinion, would be enough time with them, even though you're spending plenty of time with them in your perspective. What do you think? You keep commenting that I need to spend more time with them too. Isn't that something? Because the truth of the matter is, is that your father also spent time with his daughters and probably gave them different activities all through their childhood, as well as their teen years. And even after some of their married years, I try to give them as much attention because all three of my daughters need a lot of attention. And when you're working day and night, the person that was supposed to fill in for me was Maureen. And she isn't able to have necessarily the same game that maybe her husband has. And yet it's not her fault because it really takes two people at least to be able to raise a family of three children. And maybe it takes at least two people, if not more, to even raise a family of one child because work gets in the way, other relationships or friendships or other activities could get in the way or other uh, hobbies. And uh, sometimes a child demands every second of your time. But back to the story that also occurs from this is that after being in a rebellious state, you get into trouble. You hang out with the wrong people. You get into more trouble. That's where alcohol and drugs is the disguise where that thinks that it's going to make you feel better or make you uh, look cooler by being in a gang or learning to drink more than somebody else. And really, all of those things are not signs of strength. In fact, they show that they're really signs of weakness. But we don't learn that lesson until sometimes until our wisdom rating goes up as the years go by. And we realize that some of the things that we think make us uh, stronger or tougher are really putting us down. What do you think of that, Apples? How would you apply that to you? I've always been a tough guy. But as Josh said also, is that when it comes to being around your kids and, and your grandkids, and when it comes to 
being around people that you really want to help. I've uh, sometimes been accused of being a softie or to be too compassionate. And yet I'd rather be compassionate and try to help people rather than making it all about me. And yet it depends on your perspective. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Ren 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah.